It represents an area that's twice the size of India and more than seven times the size of Texas. That's just over six and a half million square kilometers. According to the World Wildlife Fund, it's also believed to contain 10% of Earth's known species and is home to more than 47 million people, two million of whom are indigenous. I am, of course, talking about the beautiful Amazon rainforest. And in this episode of the Robot Podcast from ABB, we're heading off to discover how even here, in these remote depths, robotic technology is helping towards its future conservation. I'm Fran Scott, presenter, maker, and all-around engineering fan. And today we are going to hear from Mosin Kazmi, CEO of conservation group Jungle Keepers, who will be telling us about his passion for replanting and re-education to save the Amazon. And Kelly Vigier, global product marketing specialist, who'll give us an insight into the Robot Studio cloud system that's allowing robots that are situated in the Amazon to actually be controlled some 7,460 miles away in Sweden in an exciting pilot project that makes it the world's most remote robot. But first, despite the incredible size and importance of the Amazon rainforest, the World Wildlife Fund says that an area equivalent to five football pitches is cut down every minute. And that deforestation is a concern. So what's going on and what will happen if we don't do something about it? I spoke with Dr. Erasmus Suemgesen, researcher from the University of Louvain in Belgium, who is working to improve the transparency and sustainability of supply chains that might rely on the Amazon. But before that, let's find out more about this fascinating place. The Amazon is, first and foremost, the world's largest tropical forest. It's spread across nine countries in South America. About two-thirds of it sits inside Brazil, with large chunks also in Peru and Colombia. And when I say it's the largest tropical forest, I think it sometimes is quite hard to get a sense of the scale of it. Even just the portion that sits in Brazil is the size of the European Union. Incredibly biodiverse. It's home to around 10% of all the world's mammal species, about 15% of all the birds, and needless to say, a lot of plants as well. So it really is one of the crown jewels of the world's biological and, and social diversity. Could you break down why that is so important for us? The existence of the Amazon in of itself, it deserves to exist just for being such a place of quite inconceivable magic and diversity. The thing is, these forests also provide an enormous amount of services, what scientists call sort of ecosystem services. And this means that the forests actually do things that humans benefit from. Just to name two, one is the Amazon is an enormous store of carbon. Any debate about how we can address climate change has to include how we protect forests like the Amazon, because each tree really is like a bar of carbon. You know, we store gold in bars and actually nature stores its carbon in, in trees. On top of that, these trees, they, they don't just sit there, they breathe. If you think about, you know, a cold day, when you breathe out, you can see the humidity coming off your breath. And every time a tree breathes, it does the same thing. 
it actually pulls water up from its roots all the way from the soil and then basically you know breathes it out via its leaves into the atmosphere and so these forests they're called rainforests for a reason that they generate rain so the amazon rainforest is actually the source of by some studies you know 70% of the rainfall that falls across an enormous area in south america so not just central south brazil but almost all the rainfall in paraguay in large parts of uruguay in northern argentina in bolivia and when we think about the value of rain well we couldn't produce agricultural crops if we don't have a stable climate and a stable source of rainfall so the amazon exists it has incredible beauty in of itself but on top of that it also does do a lot for communities living across south america and yes it's beautiful and yes it's important but it has not had an easy life what are the challenges that this region faces the biggest challenge that the amazon faces is the fact that it's being lost 17% the rainforests have already been cleared and this is not something that just happened a long time ago it's something that we see in news stories every year with fires and deforestation to put it into context you know 12,000 kilometers of forest were lost in the brazilian amazon alone last year uh, that's an area around 16 times the size of new york you know what's causing this clearance it's a combination of sort of agribusiness and land grabbing and other sort of more localized issues like mining but most of deforestation is for agriculture for the expansion of cattle ranching into the amazon brazil is one of the world's biggest producers of beef it has more cows than people a large chunk of these are farmed inside the amazon biome so the area where the amazon used to occupy the loss of forest is really just half the story there's also a big threat through degradation so where the forest still stands but it's been degraded and this is from the extraction of timber so the big trees being taken out it's from fires which burn the understory of the forest so all the small plants on the ground it's from the impact of extreme droughts and also just the impact of that deforestation so every time a road gets cut through the forest and land gets cleared you expose a new edge of the forest to a non-forest area and these edge effects as they're called because they happen on the edge of the forest they also cause a loss of a lot of the natural structure of the forest and it's in a vicious cycle actually where as the forest gets degraded more likely to burn the dry season rainfall uh, gets reduced and so these forests are actually more sensitive to drought which means that they get weaker and therefore we're in this sort of vicious cycle where the loss and damage to forests causes climate change but climate change also is a threat to the forests that remain if more trees are lost and this degradation continues at the rate that it's going what would be the long-term impact of that first of all there are short-term impacts all the millions of people who are dependent on these forests for their livelihoods they are impacted in the short term and we shouldn't downplay that looking to the longer term one of the biggest risks is of what is called a tipping point this sort of analogy of the straw that broke the camel's back you're piling luggage on top of a camel and then you know at one point you add just one straw too much it breaks its back and the tipping point in the amazon is also one thing that climate scientists are really worried about climate scientists estimate that if we lose 20 25% then large parts of the amazon will stop 
being forests and they will basically become savannas, so much drier, much sparser vegetation. And it's because of this climate feedback, you lose too much, then the rainforest is unable to produce the rain that actually sustains itself. And so it actually shifts from being a forest into being something completely different, a savanna, a much drier, grassier vegetation. The savannas, they don't store as much carbon, they don't generate as much rainfall. And so we actually would have a completely different system. And these ecosystem services, these benefits that the Amazon provides in stabilizing our climate, supporting agriculture across South America, they are under threat if that tipping point is reached. Clearly, protecting the Amazon is absolutely crucial to lots of us, not just those in South America. Are there any methods that you are aware of when it comes to restoration of the Amazon? The priority is to stop the forest being cleared. And then as a secondary step, you really need to restore. Now, Brazil already has some very powerful legislation. It has something called the Forest Code, set of laws which say, okay, farmers in the Amazon, they need to keep 80% of their land as forest, and uh, they have to keep a certain percentage near water bodies, so near the river. And if they clear too much, they have to go through a process of re-legalizing their land. And these public policies, they're sort of world-leading, but the implementation of them has really fallen down. In the early 2000s, we were in a similar period where deforestation in Brazil was very high. And then what happened is the government came in and they strengthened that legislation and they empowered the environmental enforcement agency known as IBAMA to do command and control. So punishing illegal deforestation and targeting credit to the places which needed it, but where deforestation was not high. What we saw was that they reduced deforestation by 70%. That was a huge success story and it was rightly lauded internationally. But a lot of that progress was undone in the last decade, and in particular under the last government of Jair Bolsonaro. So step one is just to go back and learn from what Brazil did in the past and try to modernize it and implement it again to reduce deforestation. A second is to secure land tenure. So there's about 2.8 million hectares of deforestation on lands that are sort of undesignated. So they're not in private hands. They've not been made into national parks. This land is land which is ripe for restoration. This is land which was cleared illegally, doesn't really have an ownership. And actually, almost 2 million hectares of this was cleared just since 2015. So if you're thinking about restoration and also preventing deforestation, addressing the land tenure issue, so the government actually assigning these lands to some sort of class to protect it now, that would be a really big step. The third thing that I think needs to happen is for companies to step up their efforts. There are some leading companies operating in this region, including all the major meat packers. You know, one thing that really underpins all of this is to empower the local communities that live in the Amazon the indigenous groups who've had rights threatened and many indigenous protectors have been murdered in recent years. So that's the foundation for any conservation in the Amazon. And then I would bring in last the technical assistance, how you actually do the restoration, the cost benefit of it, uh, what technologies you use. But really technology and restoration are the last piece of the jigsaw. Thank you to Dr. Erasmus Suemgesen from the University of Louvain. 
it's clear that protecting what is left of the Amazon is going to be crucial. But perhaps restoring its native trees can also help. And one person who is trying to make that a reality is Mozin Kazmi, CEO of Jungle Keepers. We chatted about his work restoring the Amazon and how he uses ABB robotics to help. I started by asking him why he's so passionate about it. Ever since I was a kid, I have been fascinated with all the little tiny creatures that we see or maybe don't see on a regular basis. And when I was in college, it was a goal of mine to explore and see as many rainforest ecosystems as possible. So when I was 20 years old, I traveled to Madagascar and that was the first ecosystem I explored. And after that, I landed in Peru. I had heard a gunshot, I heard chainsaws, I saw forests burning. The Amazon clearly needed help. What I ended up doing was dedicating my life to this one region and making sure that I could protect something so that other people could enjoy it down the line. So Jungle Keepers is a nonprofit organization that we started almost 10 years ago that protects 50,000 acres of rainforest in the Peruvian Amazon. We're working specifically in the Madre de Dios region of Peru, which means Mother of God. It's the headwaters of the Peruvian Amazon, which means anything that happens in that ecosystem affects the rest of the entire Amazon basin. So our goal is to protect as much contiguous rainforest habitat as possible. To do that, we have a ranger program that hires former loggers, miners, and poachers, and indigenous people that grew up and were born on the river that we're protecting to patrol and report illegal activities all over our 50,000 acre reserve. What an office to be working in. And you've mentioned the rangers. It's not something you do alone, is it? You've got, you've got a team of people there. Yeah, we have a team of rangers working. We have a, a team of support staff. But what I really am proud of in the Jungle Keepers organization is the fact that our rangers are male and female, some are from cities, some are children of loggers and miners. Many of them were born and raised on the river. And it's just great to be able to have this mixture of people working together to protect their backyard. Our river, the Las Piedras River, is situated between three protected regions in Peru but our river specifically is not protected. So it does act as a thoroughfare and a highway for resource extraction. And our goal is to protect as much of it as possible and then potentially add it to the protected area of Peru to create perhaps one of the largest park systems in the world and certainly the, one of the most biodiverse. This is the robot podcast. So where do robots come into all of this? How do you put those to work? We started a reforestation program that aims to take the areas that are deforested and replant them. With that in mind, what we're doing is we're, we're reforesting small areas. I like to call them band-aids, right? So we could leave these areas alone and see what the rainforest does, and that could take up to 50 to 300 years. But what we're doing is we're growing important plant species, tree species, shrub species, and actively replanting them before the secondary growth comes in and chokes out. The robots are an interesting aspect because it's a long process. We basically have to start seeds, 
germinate them into saplings, grow them until they're viable to plant, and then bring them out into the rainforest and plant them. And ABB reached out to us about trying to create an easier way for our rangers to be able to start these seeds. And the ABB Yumi was brought to the station. We configured a way to basically start seeds and the robot actually does most of the work for us. We're planting up to 600 trees a day and that's really freeing up a lot of opportunity for our rangers to do other things that only rangers can do. The Yumi robot is a cobot, which means it doesn't do all of the work for us. What it does is it works in tandem with a ranger that assists the robot while the robot is assisting them. The way we have our robot set up is at our station. It's powered completely by solar and it sits on a table and we have crates that we've designed to hold 16 different flower pots. And what we do is the ranger will slide in those flower pots. The robot will pick up seeds, remove soil, plant the seed, and then cover the soil over the seed in a repetitive, quickly as possible process. And what that does is allow the rangers to fill up soil in bags and then continuously remove the crate and bring it to our greenhouse to put another crate in and continue to plant. It's able to pick up different size seeds, different shape seeds, kind of just remove a monotonous kind of boring element that the rangers would typically, you know, have to do. It's also just really entertaining for our rangers to be able to kind of just watch and see this robot working. It's actually been kind of difficult because, you know, one person is supposed to be helping the robot. I find that I come to the station and five rangers are just watching the robot <laughs> while it's all going. But I think it's really important to bring technology into this place. While it does help us in our operations, what I think is very important or equally important is the fact that our rangers can see what technology is capable of. It's one thing to be able to explain to our rangers, you know, you could plant these seeds and do what you're doing, but think about what else this robot can do. Think about what else technology is capable of. I always say that if the people who are extracting these resources have access to technology, then we as a conservation organization need to have access to even better technology because technology and conservation working together is truly the future of how we can save the planet. You described this scene of the use of the robots being also brilliant entertainment. How much does the arrival of Yumi inspire the rangers to then take things on board themselves and maybe set up a system like this without your input? It was a big, long journey to try to bring this robot into our station. And it started from somewhere in South America and it wound up in the, the closest town to us. And we basically put it on a boat in a big case and traveled up river with it. When we arrived, the rangers saw this very nice fancy case that we had brought it in, carried it to the station. And when they opened it up, the reveal was quite entertaining because uh, the robot isn't that large. It's about the size of a human torso, a small human torso at that. And having them lift it up and watching the engineer help them set it up was a lot of fun. It didn't take much in terms of changing our infrastructure at the station. In fact, we just plugged it into our solar array and 
the Rangers were just at that point kind of watching it work, getting it configured with the engineering team. Then it started moving. Every time the robot started moving, the Rangers would kind of mimic and try to emulate the way it was moving. And after a while, they realized, you know, my joints don't articulate that way. They started to embrace the fact that it might be able to churn out these seeds so that they could start working their soil, adding uh, soil to pots, filling more crates. For me, it's not about being fully productive all the time. I think the robot allows them to just take a second. It's a really hot, humid, challenging environment. Knowing that they can start these seeds, put the robot away and just relax for a second is also a great thing. Could you sum up the benefits that it brings having the robots working with you, but also the challenges that you've come across working this robot in the middle of the Peruvian rainforest? From what I understand, this is the first time a robot has been fully powered by solar and used on a production scale. A big honor to be part of that first. The challenges haven't been too bad because... ABB provided a great engineering team that we've been able to work with to iron out any issues and to troubleshoot issues before they occur, kind of setting us up to be able to just run our machine. The Rangers are really smart. They're really capable. They're young. And they don't necessarily need to be engineers to be able to make this work. So it's great to be able to have a team with ABB that can help us on a moment's notice. We have rudimentary satellite internet where we're at and that's enough to be able to communicate with the people that we need to to be able to troubleshoot issues having the yumi robot here in a challenging environment and proving that it can work is really important data for perhaps other companies that are looking to work this robot in an area that might even be considered more favorable more static to be able to perform the functions they need to make their processes more efficient Planting seeds is just the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. When we look to the future, how do you see technology like this helping conservation in the future at this sort of scale? I really do feel like we're running out of time in terms of conservation. We're at a place in the history of our planet where, you know, we've lost 60% of the biodiversity on this planet, every living thing since 1970, and it's only increasing as temperatures rise and and our environment is not what it used to be. It's raining less in the Amazon, and when it does, it's not raining the way it used to, even since the time I started working there. Using technology is a way to speed up our process and, and kind of give us an edge in a monumental project that we're undertaking as a species, which is trying to save as much ecosystem as possible so that it can provide all of the free services that it does to ensuring that our climate is stable and also protecting the millions of different living organisms that exist on this planet that earned their keep here through evolution and don't deserve to just disappear because of some irresponsible land management uses. You know, society only benefits when old men plant trees that they will never live to enjoy the shade of. Mozin Kazmi, CEO of Jungle Keepers. During that conversation, you might have had the same image in your head as I did of this robot arm, not only helping these people on this very important mission, but also being their entertainment. 
Our final guest today is going to tell us about a new cloud-based robotic simulation tool that allows operators to access programs, make changes, and share information in real time. And it is exactly the type of thing you need to control a robot in the depths of a Peruvian rainforest. Kelly VGA is a global product marketing specialist for Robot Studio Cloud. Basically, Robot Studio Cloud is a new solution of Robot Studio, our offline programming and simulation tool for robotics application. You can see it like the Microsoft Pack Office, but for robotics. So basically, you have the desktop version that we have for a long time now, Robot Studio. And now you have the cloud version, Robot Studio Cloud, with a simplified interface, uh, which helps users to manage their Robot Studio project with a better collaboration with their team everyone working around the same file together and with more traceability. So basically, with Robot Studio Cloud, a user can share and collaborate on projects with others. It can see and tweak robot behavior from everywhere and on any devices, and it can track changes did by other members of the team. But to me, this is something that when I was younger... I would see it as being sci-fi and it would never exist. The fact that we could remotely collaborate from other ends of the world and then remotely control physical robots that, again, could be at another corner of the globe. How collaborative does this allow people to be? First things, Robot Studio Cloud is very easy to use. So every member of the team can use it and not only technical people, which is really important because a salesperson, for instance, can totally use it to check the project or show it to his customer and even do some small changes if it's needed. This increases a lot the collaboration because before with only the desktop version, non-technical people didn't feel confident enough to use Robot Studio. It looks too technical or to be accessible for them. And then another important part, since you are in the cloud, you can work on your project from everywhere and on any device, which simplifies the collaboration with people. And finally, user can track the changes. Basically, you have the history of all the changes with the date, a short description, and who did it. So you can go back to a previous version in just one click, which is really useful sometimes. And has there been anything like this up until now? Obviously, there's cloud generally, but for something cloud-based of this detail to being able to be worked on in multiple ways at the same time. We are just at the first step of future and even more promising solution. But yes, it's already a game changer in the industry world. Of course, some companies are trained to build similar solutions, but until now, they are not delivering what we provide today, which means a cloud solution based on the virtual controller. The virtual controller is really the core of Robot Studio Desktop today that we put into Robot Studio Cloud as well. And this part ensure you that what you see is what you get. So in your factory, what you are designing in your software in the cloud or desktop will be exactly the same thing in your factory at the end. And we are very excited about this project and what is coming. With this cloud-based version, how much time does this save your clients? 
Every project in robotics is very different, whether in terms of size or complexity. For instance, a project can have one robot or 12 robots. Uh, some application needs more work and expertise than others. Improving the, the collaboration between the different members of this project and having only one version chain between everyone and updating instantly. Having a clearly access to who changed what and someone able to merge or not these changes significantly reduce the risk of errors, increase the transparency and thus save time. So how much this really depends on your project, but for sure you will save time. Kelly Vigier, Global Product Marketing Specialist for Robot Studio Cloud. And what an episode, a little bit of a different setting to the normal robot podcast. But gosh, it's incredible to see how robotics and the robot studio cloud system is helping with such an important issue. But that is it for this week. Thank you to our wonderful guests, Dr. Erasmus Zuemgassen, Mosin Kazmi, and of course, Kelly Vigier. Next week, it's our final episode and the Megamix is back. We'll be bringing you the very best of previously unheard moments from across the series. I'm Fran Scott. The Robot Podcast is a fresh air production for ABB. The producers are Graham Seaman and Izzy Clark. And don't forget to follow now for free wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Part of the ABB Decoded series. 